5. The wing would not yet go in. Without losing patience, they once more went to work, and, after having labored for three hours and a half, they at last had the pleasure of seeing their dried wings safely pulled into their storeroom. Then, there are spiders. They frequently show the greatest skill and cunning in the construction of their webs and the capture of their prey. And naturalists say that the spider has a very well-developed brain. They must certainly have a geometrical talent, or they could not arrange their webs with such regularity and scientific accuracy. Some spiders will throw their webs across streams that are quite wide. Now, to do this, they must show themselves to be engineers of no small ability. Sometimes they fasten one end of a thread to a twig on one side of the stream, and, hanging on the other end, swing over until they can land on the other side. But this is not always possible, for they cannot, in some places, get a chance for a fair swing. In such a case, they often wait until the wind is blowing across the stream from the side on which they are, and, weaving a long line, they let it out until the wind carries it over the stream, and it catches in the bushes or grass on the other side. Of course, after one thread is over, the spider can easily run backward and forward on it, and carry over all the rest of his lines. These have so much sense that we ought almost to beg their pardon when we speak of their instinct. Most of us have read what Hubber and others have told us of their plans, inventions, laws, and regular habits. It is astonishing to a red of a bee supervisor, going the round of the cells where the larvae are lying, to see if each of them has enough food. He never stops until he has finished his review, and then he makes another circuit, depositing in each cell just enough food a little in this one, a great deal in the next and so on. There were once some bees who were very much disturbed by a number of great moths who made a practice of coming into their hives and stealing their honey. Do what they could. The bees could not drive these strong creatures out, but they soon hit upon a plan to save their honey. They blocked up all the doors of the hive with wax, leaving only a little hole, just big enough for one bee to enter at a time. Then the moths were completely dumbfounded, and gave up the honey business in despair but the insect to which the epithet of cunning may be best ascribed, is, I think, the flea. If you doubt this, try to catch one. What double back springs he will turn, what fancy dodges he will execute, and how, at last, you will have to give up the game and acknowledge yourself beaten by this little gymnast. But fleas have been taught to perform their tricks of strength and activity in an orderly and highly proper manner. They have been trained to go through military exercises carrying little sticks for guns, to a work and pull about small cannon, although the accounts say nothing about their firing them off, and, what seems the most wonderful of all, two fleas had been harnessed to a little coach while another one sat on the box and drove, the whole of this wonderful exhibition was so small that a microscope had to be used in order to properly observe it, the last instance of the intelligence of insects which I will give is something almost too wonderful to believe, and yet the statement is made by a Dr. Linsicum, who studied the habits of the insect in question for 12 years, and his investigations were published in the Journal of the Linnean Society. Dr. Linsicum says, that in Texas there is an ant called by him the agricultural ant, which not only lays up stores of grain, but prepares the soil for the crop, plants the seed of a certain plant called ant rice, keeps the ground free from weeds, and finally reaps the harvest, and separating the chaff from the grain packs away the latter, and throws the chaff outside of the plantation. In Wood's Bible Animals, you can read a full account of this ant, and I think that after hearing of its exploits, we can believe almost anything that we hear about the intelligence of insects.
a first sight of the sea. If you have ever seen the ocean, you will understand what a grand thing it is to look for the first time upon its mighty waters, stretching away into the distance, and losing themselves in the clouds and sky. We know it is thousands of miles over to the other shore, but for all that we have a pretty good idea of that shore. We know its name, and have read about the people who live there, but when, in the beginning of the 16th century, Vasco Núñez de Balboa stood upon the shore of the Pacific, and gazed over its boundless waters, the sight to him was both grand and mysterious. He saw that a vast sea lay beneath and before him but that was all he knew. Europeans had not visited it before, and the Indians, who had acted as his guides, knew but little about it. If he had desired to sail across those vast blue waters, Balboa would have had no idea upon what shores he would land or what wonderful countries and continents he would discover. Nowadays, any schoolboy could tell that proud, brave soldier, what lay beyond those billows, supposing little Johnny Green we all know him, don't we, had been there, how quickly he would have settled matters for the Spanish chieftain, ah, Mr. Balboa, Johnny would have said, you want to know what lies off in that direction straight across, well, I can tell you, sir, if you are standing, as I think you are, on a point of the Isthmus of Darien, where you can look directly westward, you may cast your eyes, as far as they will go, over a body of water, which, at this point, is about 11,000 miles wide, no wonder you jump, sir, but such is the fact, if you were to sail directly west upon this ocean you would have a very long passage before you came upon any land at all, and the first place which you would reach, if you kept straight on your westward course, would be the Mulgrave Islands, but you would have passed about seven or eight hundred miles to the southward of the Sandwich Islands, which are a very important group, where there is an enormous volcano, and where Captain Cook will be killed in about 250 years, if you then keep on, you will pass among the Caroline Islands, which your countrymen will claim some day, and if you are not eaten up by the natives, who will no doubt coax you to a land on some of their islands and will then have you for supper, you will at last reach the Philippine Islands, and will probably land, for a time, at Mindanao, to get water and things, then, if you still keep on, you will pass to the north of a big island, which is Borneo, and will sail right up to the first land to the west, which will be part of a continent, or else you will go down around a peninsula, which lies directly in your course, and sail upon the other side of it, into a great gulf, and land anywhere you please, do you know where you will be then, Mr. Balboa, don't, eh, well, sir, you would be just where Columbus hoped he would be, when he reached the end of his great voyage across the Atlantic in the Indies, yes, sir, all among the gold, and ivory, and spices, and elephants and other things, if you can get any ships here and will start off and steer carefully among the islands, you won't find anything in your way until you get there, but, it was different with Columbus, you see, sir, he had a whole continent blocking up his road to the Indies, but, for my part, I'm very glad for various reasons, that it happened so, it is probable that if Johnny Green could have delivered this little speech, that Vasco Núñez de Balboa would have been one of the most astonished men in the world, whether he and his fellow adventurers would ever have set out to sail over those blue waters, in search of the treasures of the East, is more than I can say, but it is certain that if he had started off on such an expedition, he would have found things pretty much as Johnny Green had told him, the largest church in the world, this is Street Peters at Rome, 
Is it possible to look upon such a magnificent edifice without acknowledging it as the grandest of all churches? There are some others in the world more beautiful, and some more architecturally perfect, but there is none so vast, so impressive, so grand. This great building was commenced in 1506, but it was a century and a half before it was finished. Among other great architects, Michelangelo assisted in its construction. The building is estimated to have cost, simply for its erection, about 50 millions of dollars, and it has cost a great deal in addition in later years. Its dimensions are enormous. You cannot understand what a great building it is unless you could see it side by side with some house or church with which you are familiar. Several of the largest churches in this country could be stood up inside of street theaters without touching walls or roof, or crowding each other in the least. There are but three works of man in the whole world which are higher than the little knob which you see on the cupola surmounting the great dome of street theaters. These more lofty buildings are the Great Pyramid of Egypt, the Spire of Strasbourg, and the Tower of Amiens. The highest of these, the Pyramid Island however, only 42 feet above street theaters. The great dome is supported by four pillars, each of which is 70 feet thick. But let us step inside of this great edifice. I think you will be there even more impressed with its height and extent than you were when you stood on the outside. Is not here a vast and lofty expanse? But even from this favorable point you cannot get a complete view of the interior. In front of you, you see in the distance the light striking down from above. There is the great dome, and when you walk beneath it you will be amazed at its enormous height. There are four great halls like this one directly before us, for the church is built in the form of a cross, with the dome at the intersection of the arms. There are also openings in various directions, which lead into what are called chapels, but which are in reality as large as ordinary sized churches. The pavement of the whole edifice is made of colored marble, and, as you see, the interior is heavily decorated with carving and statuary. Much of this is bronze and gold. But if you should mount and there are stairs by which you may make the ascent into the cupola at the top of the dome, and look down into the vast church, and see the people crawling about like little insects so far below you, you would perhaps understand better than at any other time that it is not at all surprising that this church should be one of the wonders of the world. If we ever go to Europe, we must not fail to see Street Peter's Church at Rome, the soft place. There was once a young jaguar who was very intimately related to the Panther family as you may remember, and he sat upon a bit of hard rock, and cogitated, the subject of his reflections was very simple indeed, for it was nothing more nor less than this where should he get his supper, he would not have cared so much for his supper, if it had been that he had had no dinner, and even this would not have made so much difference if he had had his breakfast, but in truth he had eaten nothing all day, during the summer of that year the meat markets in that section of the country were remarkably bad, it was sometimes difficult for a panther or a wildcat to find enough food to keep her family at all decently, and there were cases of great destitution. In years before there had been plenty of deer, wild turkey, raccoons, and all sorts of good things, but they were very scarce now. This was not the first time that our young jaguar had gone hungry for a whole day. While he thus sat day wondering where he should go to get something to eat, he fell asleep, and had a dream and this is what he dreamed. He dreamed that he saw on the grass beneath the rock where he was lying five fat young deer. Three of them were sisters, and the other two were cousins. They were discussing the propriety of taking a nap on the grass by the river bank, and one of them had already stretched herself out. Now, thought the jaguar in his dream, shall I wait until they all go to sleep, 
and then pounce down softly and kill them all. Or shall I spring on that one on the ground and make sure of a good supper at any rate? While he was thus deliberating in his mind which it would be best for him to do, the oldest cousin cocked up her ears as if she heard something, and just as the jaguar was going to make a big spring and get one out of the family before they took to their heels, he woke up. What a dreadful disappointment. Not a deer, or a sign of one, to be seen, and nothing living within a mile. But no, there is something moving. It is yes, it is a big alligator, lying down there on the rocks. After looking for a few minutes with disgust at the ugly creature, the jaguar said to himself, He must have come on shore while I was asleep. But what matters it? An alligator, very different indeed from five fat young deer. Ah me, I wish he had not that great horny skin, and I'd see if I could make a supper off of him. Let me see. There is a soft place, as I've been told, about the alligator. If I could but manage and get a grip of that, I think that I could settle old Mr. Hardskin, in spite of his long teeth. I've a mind and a half to try. Yes, I'll do it. So saying, the jaguar settled himself down as flat as he could and crept a little nearer to the alligator. And then, with a tremendous spring, he threw himself upon him. The alligator was asleep, but his nap came to a very sudden close, you may be sure. And he opened his eyes and his mouth both at the same time but he soon found that he would have to bestir himself in a very lively manner, for a strong and hungry jaguar had got hold of him. It had never before entered into the alligator's head that anybody would want to eat him, but he did not stop to think about this, but immediately went to a work to defend himself with all his might. He lashed his great tail around, he snapped his mighty jaws at his enemy, and he made the dust fly generally, but it all seemed of little use. The jaguar had fixed his teeth in a certain soft place in his chest, under his foreleg, and there he hung on like grim death. The alligator could not get at him with his tail, nor could he turn his head around so as to get a good bite. The alligator had been in a hard case all his life, but he really thought that this surprising conduct of the jaguar was something worse than anything he had ever been called upon to bear. Does he really think, I wonder, said the alligator to himself that he is going to have me for his supper, it certainly looked very much as if Mr. Jaguar had that idea, and as if he would be able to carry out his intention, for he was so charmed at having discovered the soft place of which he had so often been told that he resolved never to let go until his victim was dead, and in the midst of the struggle he could not but regret that he had never thought of hunting alligators before, as it may well be imagined, the alligator soon began to be very tired of this sort of thing. He could do nothing at all to damage his antagonist, and the jaguar hurt him, keeping his teeth jammed into the very tenderest spot in his whole body, so he came to the conclusion that, if he could do nothing else, he would go home, if the jaguar chose to follow him, he could not help it, of course, so, gradually, he pulled himself, jaguar and all, down to the river, and, as the banks sloped quite suddenly at this place, he soon plunged into deep water, with his bloodthirsty enemy still hanging fiercely to him. As soon as he found himself in the water, the alligator rolled himself over and got on top. Then they both sank down, and there was nothing seen on the surface of the water but bubbles. The fight did not last very long after this, but the jaguar succeeded perfectly in his intentions. He found a soft place in the mud at the bottom of the river and he stayed there. A few feathered friends, whether dressed in broadcloth, silk, calico, homespun, or feathers, 
Friends are such valuable possessions that we must pay these folks who are now announced as much attention as possible. And if we do this and in every way endeavor to make them feel comfortable and entirely at home, we will soon perceive a very great difference between them and many of our friends who dress in coats and frocks. For the more we do for our feathered friends, the more they will do for us. Now, you can't say that of all the men and women and boys and girls that you know. I wish most sincerely that you could. The first family who calls upon us and the head of this family makes the very earliest calls that I know anything about are too well known to all of us to need the slightest introduction. You will see in an instant that you have met them before. And there is no doubt but that these are among the very best feathered friends we have. Those hens are liberal with their eggs. And those little chickens that are running around like two-legged puffballs are so willing to grow up and be broiled and roasted and stewed that it would now be almost impossible for us to do without them. Eggs seem to come into use on so many occasions that, if there was to be an egg famine, it would make itself felt in every family in the land. Not only would we miss them when boiled, fried and cooked in omelets for breakfast, not only without them would ham seem lonely, puddings and sponge cakes go into decline, and pound cake utterly die, but the arts and manufactures of the whole country would feel the deprivation. Merely in the photographic business hundreds of thousands of eggs are needed every year, from which to procure the albumen used in the preparation of photographic paper. Do without eggs? Impossible. And to do without chicken for dinner would seem almost as impossible for some folks. To be sure, we might live along very comfortably without those delightful broils, and roasts, and fricassees, but it would be a great pity. And, if we live in the country... There is no meat which is so cheap and easily procured all the year round as chicken. I wonder what country people would do, especially in the summertime, when they have little other fresh meat, without their chickens, very badly, I imagine. Next to these good old friends comes the pigeon family. These are very intimate with many of us. Pigeons are in one respect even more closely associated with man than the domestic fowls, because they live with him as readily in cities as in the country. City chickens always seem out of place, but city pigeons are as much at home as anybody else. There are few houses so small that there is not room somewhere for a pigeon box, and there are no roofs or yards so humble that the handsomest and proudest powders and tumblers and fantails will not willingly come and strut and go about them as long as they receive good treatment and plenty of food. But apart from the pleasure and profit which these beautiful birds ordinarily afford to their owners, Some of them the carriers are often of the greatest value, and perform important business that would have to be left undone if it were not for them. The late war in France has fully proved this. I remember hearing persons say that now, since telegraph lines had become so common, they supposed carrier pigeons would no longer be held in esteem, and that the breed would be suffered to die out. But that is a mistake. There are times, especially during wars, when telegraphic and railroad lines are utterly useless and then the carrier pigeon remains master of the situation. The doves are such near relations of the pigeons that we might suppose they would resemble them in their character as much as in appearance, but they are not very much alike. Doves are not ambitious, they don't pout, or tumble, or have fantails, as to carrying messages, or doing anything to give themselves renown. They never think of it, they are content to be affectionate and happy, and that is a great deal. If they did nothing all their lives but set examples to children and to their parents also. Sometimes, the doves would be among our most full little birds. I suppose we all have some friends whom we are always glad to see. 
even if they are of no particular service to us. And this is right, we should not value people's society in exact proportion to what we think we can get out of them. Now, this one is a feathered friend, and a good one, but I must say he is of very little practical use to us. But there is something more to be desired than vandals, clothes, feather beds, and Easter eggs. We should love the beautiful as well as the full. Not so much, to be sure, but still very much. The boy or man who despises a rose because it is not a cabbage is much more nearly related to the cows and dogs than he imagines. If we accustom ourselves to look for beauty, and enjoy it, we will find it, after a while, where we never supposed it existed in the caterpillar, for instance, and in the snakes. There is beauty as well as practical value in almost everything around us, and we are not the lords of creation that we suppose we are, unless we are able to see it. Now, then. I have preached you a little sermon, with this one's for a text, but they are certainly beautiful subjects. A goose, when it is swimming, is a very handsome bird, and it is most admirable when it appears on the table roasted of a delightful brown, with a dish of applesauce to keep it company. But, for some reason, the goose has never been treated with proper consideration. It has for hundreds of years, I expect, been considered as a silly bird, but there never was a greater mistake. If we looked at the thing in the proper light, we would not be at all ashamed to be called a goose. If anyone were to call you an ostrich, I don't believe you would be very angry, but in reality it would be much more of an insult than to call you a goose. For an ostrich at times is a very silly bird, but geese have been known to do as many sensible things as any feathered creatures of which we know anything. I am not going to say anything about the geese which saved Rome for we have no record that they intended to do anything of the kind, but I will instance the case of a goose which belonged to an old blind woman, who lived in Germany. Every Sunday these two friends used to go to church together, the goose carefully leading the old woman by her frock. When they reached the church, the goose would lead his mistress to her seat and then go outside and eat grass until the services were over. When the people began to come out the goose would go in and, taking the old woman in charge, would lead her home. At other times also he was the companion of her walks, and her family knew that old blind grandmother was all right if she had the goose with her when she went out. There was another goose, in a town in Scotland, who had a great attachment for a young gentleman to whom she belonged. She would follow him in his walks about the town, and always testified her delight when she saw him start for a ramble. When he went into a barber's shop to be shaved, she would wait on the pavement until he came out and in many of his visits she accompanied him, very decorously remaining outside while her master was enjoying the society of his friends. Ducks, too, have been known to exhibit sociable and friendly traits. There is a story told of a drake who once came into a room where a young lady was sitting, and approaching her, caught hold of her dress with his bill and commenced to pull vigorously at it. The lady was very much surprised at this performance, and tried to drive the drake away but he would neither depart or stop tugging at her dress, and she soon perceived that he wanted her to do something for him, so she rose from her chair, and the drake immediately began to lead her towards the door, when he had conducted her out onto the lawn, he led her to a little lake near the house, and there she saw what it was that troubled Mr. Drake, a duck, very probably his wife, had been swimming in the lake, and in poking her head about, she had caught her neck in the narrow opening of a sluice gate and there she was, fast and tight. The lady lifted the gate. Mrs. Duck drew out her head and went quacking away. 
while Mr. Drake testified his delight and gratitude by flapping his wings and quacking at the top of his voice. We have also friends among the feathered tribes, who are not quite so intimate and sociable as those to which we have already alluded, but which still are very well deserving of our friendship and esteem. For instance, what charming little companions are the canary birds, to be sure, they would not often stay with us, if we did not confine them in cages, but they seem perfectly at home in their little wire houses, and sing and twitter with as much glee as if they were flying about in the woods of their native land or rather, of the native land of their forefathers, for most of our canary birds were born in the midst of civilization and in cages, there are some birds, however, no bigger than canaries, which seem to have an attachment for their masters and mistresses, and which do not need the restraint of a cage, there was once a goldfinch which belonged to a gentleman who lived in a town in Picardy, France, but who was often obliged to go to Paris, where he also had apartments, whenever he was obliged to go to the great city, his goldfinch would fly on ahead of him, and, arriving there some time in advance of the carriage, the servants would know that their master was coming, in time to have the rooms ready for him, and when the gentleman drove up to the door he would generally see his little goldfinch sitting on the finger of a cook or a chambermaid, and twittering away as if he was endeavoring to inform the good people of all the incidents of the journey. Some of these little birds, however, which are very friendly and comparatively sociable as long as they are not troubled and annoyed, are not only able to distinguish their friends from their foes, but are very apt to stand up vigorously in defense of their rights. Those little sparrows, which hop about so cunningly in the streets of many of our cities, understand very well that no one will hurt them, and that they may pick up crumbs wherever they can find them, but let a few boys get into the habit of throwing sticks and stones at them and the little things will leave that neighborhood as quickly as if the rents of all their tiny houses had been raised beyond their means. Magpies, too, are very companionable in their own way, if they are well treated, but if a boy should undertake to steal away with one of their nests, when it was full of young ones, he would run a very great risk of having his eyes picked out. There is a feathered friend of ours who keeps himself so secluded, at least during the daytime, that he is very apt to escape our notice. I refer to the owl, it may not be supposed, by some, that the owl is a friend of mankind, and I am perfectly willing to admit that very often he acts very much like an enemy, especially when he kills our young chickens and turkeys, but for all that, he has his good points, and very often behaves in a commendable manner, if you have a barn or a house that is overrun with mice, there is nothing that will be more certain to drive them out than an owl and he will not be so apt to steal your milk or kill your canary as many of the cats which you have taken into your family without a recommendation. We once had an owl living in our house. He belonged to my young brother, who caught him in a trap, I believe, all day long. The solemn little fellow for he was a small brown one, would sit on the back of a chair, or some such convenient place, and if any of us came near him, he would turn his head and look at us although he could not see very well in the daytime, and if we walked behind him, or on different sides of him, he would always keep his eyes on us, turning his head around exactly as if it was set on a pivot. It was astonishing how easily he could turn his head without moving his body. Some folks told us that if we walked around and around him, he would turn and turn his head, until he twisted it off. But we never tried that. It was really astonishing how soon the mice found out that there was an owl in the house. He had the range of a great part of the house all night, and in a very short time he had driven every mouse away. 
and the first time he found a window open, he went away himself. There is that objection to owls, as masters, they are very good so long as they will hold the situation, but they are exceedingly apt to leave without giving the family any notice. You won't find a cat doing that. The trouble with her very often is that she will not go when you give her notice to a leave. When we speak of our feathered friends, it is hardly fair to exclude all but those which are domesticated with us, or which are willing, sometimes, to come and live in our houses, in the country, and very often in towns. Our homes are surrounded, at certain seasons, by beautiful birds, that flutter and twitter about in the trees, and sing most charmingly in the bright hours of the early morning making the springtime and the summer tenfold more delightful than they would be without them. These birds ask nothing of us but a few cherries or berries now and then, and they pay well for these by picking up the worms and grubs from our gardens. I think that these little warblers and twitterers, who fill the air with their songs and frolic about on the trees and bushes, who build their nests under our eaves and in any little box that we may put up for them, who come regularly back to us every spring, although they may have been hundreds of miles away during the cold weather, and who have chosen, of their own accord, to live around our houses and to sing in our trees and bushes, ought to be called our friends, as much as the fowls in our poultry yards, in a well. Perhaps very few of you have ever seen such an old-fashioned well as this. No pump, no windlass, no arrangement that you are apt to call at all convenient for raising the water, nothing but that upright stake, on top of which moves a long pole with the bucket hanging from one end of it, but the artist does not show in the picture the most important part of this arrangement. On the other end of this long pole a heavy stone is fastened, and it is easy to see that a bucket of water may be raised without much trouble, with the stone bearing down the other end of the pole. To be sure, the stone must be raised when the bucket is lowered, but that is done by pulling downward on the rope, which is not so hard as to haul a rope upward when the resistance is equal in both cases. Try it some Tim.